Hey guys, David Reeves here. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. Hope you enjoy. And remember, you can catch a new episode every Wednesday at noon central on all your streaming devices. Most of these podcasts have visuals, so if you want to see the entire video, check them out at creationsuperstore.com. They're available on DVD or digital download. All right, let's get to it. Hello again, everyone. This is Steve Green on the Charisma Podcast Network, and this is the Green Lines Podcast. Every one of these podcasts is produced to help you live an abundant life. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I want that, don't you? The Lord has led us to produce over 1,100 episodes of this show with interviews from authors, pastors, teachers, business owners, and even noted musicians and worship leaders. All of this is done with a prayer and belief that we're not to live a life of scarcity. Let me say that again. We are not to live a life of scarcity. We're to live a life of abundance every day of our life. Live in abundance. That's what this show's about. And today's episode features a guest who offers a new perspective on abundant living. I have a returning guest today. His name is David Reeves. He leads annual dinosaur digs and photo safaris to Africa, expeditions into the Grand Canyon, and he shares the gospel to millions all along the way. You'd be happy to know that he's a scientist, a biologist, a paleontologist, pick four or five other ologists, and that's probably David. And we're fortunate enough and blessed enough to have him visit with us about once a month here on the Charisma Podcast Network and this show. So today, if you like dinosaurs, this show's for you. Or if you like little baby beetles, this show is for you. But be careful with this beetle because he's a fire-breathing beetle. Let's hear about it from David. So David, welcome back to Green Lines. Thank you, Dr. Green. It's great to be back. Yeah, we're really looking forward to you getting up there and digging in the dirt again and finding great stories to tell. <laughs> I, I always think it's fun. You get a little bit dirty, but you always come out with a, a better understanding, not just of geology and dinosaurs, but also of the Bible and how it all fits together. That's right. Well, let you know what, let's do something different. Let's just start right there. What's the most exciting thing that's happened to you on a dig when you're up in Kansas or wherever else that you've dug for fossils and dinosaur bones, etc. What's the most exciting find you've been a part of and what did it do for you? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I've led these digs for a number of years and I've, I've found portions of a lot of big creatures before. But uh, this, this last year, um, let's see, I guess it would be September of 2021, I, I had about 40 feet people out in the field and was teaching them how to dig up bones, how to dig up the fossils. And we actually, we're really careful when we're digging because you never know when you're going to hit a fossil. Uh, so we're typically using, you know, smaller hand picks. And then once we reach something of interest, then we go down to, to you know, uh, brushes and wow. a little dental picks. But in September, there was one hillside where I had a friend who had brought some equipment and he said, well, um, uh, he said, I've got a miniature uh, excavator here. Do you want to just try it out and see what happens? And most people would kind of balk at that because that's kind of big to be using for paleontology. But I said, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get 10 of us and we're going to surround the bucket of this excavator and we will just pick a spot where there is no fossil that has been 
previously discovered. And we'll, we'll take the bucket of the excavator and we'll take one bucket load out. And then we will, uh, you know, all 10 of us will be looking. If anybody sees a fossil being touched or anything revealed, we'll all shout out and the equipment will stop. So, so <laughs> I had all of these people gathered around and we picked a random spot. I mean, I'm talking about just this random spot, uh, but I don't believe in coincidences. No. Uh, <laughs> so I think that the, the Holy Spirit was, was leading exactly where uh, the, the bucket would go. And so we took a scoop, nothing. We went a little deeper, took a scoop, nothing. Went a little deeper, took a scoop, nothing. Went a little deeper, and the one tooth of the bucket hit something. And we all yelled, stop, stop. So <laughs> we, we knew that it was a fossil, but we couldn't tell what it was. And, and so all of us gathered around, 40 people gathered around. We backed the equipment up. We started working by hand. And it revealed this little, I mean, you know, it was probably uh, four inches wide. And it, it was a, definitely some type of a, a, a structure. So mm -hmm. we started working it back. And we went back a foot. It kept going. We went back another foot. It kept going. Back into the hillside, another foot. It kept going. Six feet, it kept going. Seven feet, it kept going all the way out to nine and a half feet. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and I knew at that point, well, as far as I know, there is no dinosaur alive or no dinosaur that ever lived that had one single bone that was nine and a half feet long. They were, you know, segmented at some point. So what is this? Well, now that we brought it back to the lab, we've been studying it. We've had SEM analysis, scanning electron microscopy. Uh, we've had uh, x-ray done to it. We've had uh, imaging done to it. We've had so many tests done to it. And now we can say, this is a very, very large chunk of mummified wood. Now, Dr. Green, when I say mummified, what I mean is it's it's not fossilized. It has not turned to stone. Okay. But it was wood. Now, but it's wood. Okay. It is wood that would still burn and it's found in the exact same layers as all of these gigantic creatures that we find. Now, here's the interesting point because most secular paleontologists, atheistic paleontologists, when they're digging up these bones in the Niobrara Formation of Kansas, they say that those bones that you dig up, that the fossils you dig up are around 90 million years old. And so they say they couldn't possibly have come from the biblical flood, the flood that we read about in Genesis. Well, wait a second. If it's found in the exact same layer, as mummified wood, wood that has not even turned to stone yet, then how can it be 90 million years old? Impossible. This is pointing us right back to the Bible. Come on. So what did this do in these kinds of digs? What, how does it impact your personal faith? I mean, you, you've already made the faith journey. You're not surprised by anything you find, but how does it bless you and how does it affect your work for the next year? Well, when something like that happens and you, and you find it, uh, even though I'm not surprised that what we see in the natural world confirms 
what we read in scripture, it is still a faith builder. It's a strengthener like you wouldn't believe because, I mean, you're actually touching tangible evidence that God's word is true. And so, I mean, I, I am constantly excited in, at these digs. And then you couple that with the fact that, you know, hey, we just picked a random spot to dig. And there is this massive piece of proof that the Bible is true. That can't happen by chance. That's not coincidence. That is, that's God at work right there. Come on. So how old was the piece of wood approximately? Well, I am, I'm actually getting ready to publish in scientific journals, but I'm not quite ready to reveal my, my full findings yet. We'll have to get to it in another episode. She's so strict. (laughs) <laughs> it's not like I'm a scientist. I'm going to go publish something. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm just an interested interviewer in trying to find out what you know. So let's talk well, about. Let's just say that it's perfectly, uh, perfectly plausible from a Christian perspective, but atheists have a problem explaining it. Of course, and we like that when that happens. <laughs> so we're going to dig around as you've been digging, and you've dug up giant sea dragons and. And I want to hear about a little bit of that. And of course, we'll probably ought to begin that with Leviathan and maybe give us a little background on Leviathan and what it has to do with the digs and what you know about it and why it's significant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's um, there are several references in the Bible to Leviathan, and it talks about this gigantic creature uh, that was a dragon in the sea or a serpent in the sea that was so fierce that none dare stir him up. That's the way the the King James phrases it. It's like, you just don't dare touch this thing because it's too mean. Uh, You can read the descriptions in the scriptures and it actually says that you can like throw spears at it. It'll bounce right off its skin. It's got like armor plates. It is a massive dragon in the sea. Now, there are several, I don't know, interesting tidbits that the Bible gives us uh, one of those being that he he breathes fire out of his mouth, <laughs> which for the for the skeptic, for those who just really, really don't believe that there's anything to Christianity, they're going to say, oh, so you believe in a myth of a fire breathing dragon. All right. That's the first huge hurdle, because it sounds kind of I mean, it sounds kind of like a fairy tale, a fire breathing dragon. Surely didn't exist in history. Well, we'll get to that in a second. We'll get to the the fire breathing part of it. But if such a large creature did exist in the past, then you would expect that some evidence of this creature would be left in the fossil record as, you know, rocks and fossils. And in the Niobrara formation, uh, which is the same formation I'm telling you about in Kansas, of all places, in far western Kansas, We have found portions, I've personally found portions, but my colleagues have found not just portions, but the entire creatures of massive marine predators. So these are big sea dragons about 50 feet long, and they're called mosasaurs or tylosaurs is the scientific name. But the Bible would call those same creatures, same type of creatures, leviathan. They're big dragons in the sea. On my last dig, I had a, I think it's 11 year old boy was digging around next to the site where everybody else was working. 
And he's like, hey, here's a, here's a vertebra, a backbone. What is this? And I ran over and, and he actually found one of the backbones off of a juvenile mosasaur while we were standing there. Uh, so they're all over the place in Kansas. And this is what the Bible talks about, a giant dragon in the sea. So it's not a fairy tale. It's actually a real creature that is being dug up in Kansas, right here in the States. Well, I mean, it's just amazing to hear it because most of us just think of it as something we've seen on television or movies and have really a lot of difficulty in wrapping our arms around it. And yet we know it's part of our history. Yes. And, and Dr. Green, I might add that when we talk about, you know, being able to see it, being able to touch it, being a part of it, it really does make the Bible come alive. And it makes our Christian faith come alive because we realize that we can use these things to then go out and be better, more effective witnesses for Christ. Right. When when that skeptic comes up to you and they say, oh, you believe in a book of fairy tales, then you can be like, no, no, let let me tell you, look, I actually saw I actually touched a Leviathan. And the Bible tells us about these things thousands of years before we ever found them in the fossil record. So how could it be a fairy tale? It's not. So let's get it even a little more interesting to think about scratching our chin with it and discuss this bombardier beetle. (laughs) I'm I'm interested in it, and how do we tie that in to one of these fire-breathing dragons? All right. Well, that's where the fire-breathing dragon portion of it comes. Um, That one is the major criticism uh, of Leviathan, because people say that, you know, no animal ever breathed fire. Well, there's a beetle, a tiny beetle that you can find in Oklahoma, in Texas. You can find them all over the states, all over the world. And it's called the bombardier beetle. Well, the bombardier beetle is uh, pretty small, but it has three chambers in its abdomen. And let me see if I can just kind of visually explain this so that we can all picture it. So, all right, I'm ready. If, all right, so if a spider or an ant comes up to attack this beetle, the beetle has different chemical components stored in its stomach in different areas. Now, when it feels threatened, the the chemical components in its abdomen, it squeezes those into a third chamber, uh, another little pocket that starts this chemical reaction. It's like a catalyst. It starts a chemical reaction that turns these different chemical components in its belly into scalding hot chemical spray. Now, if that's not enough, it actually has a little cannon built inside of its, uh, basically its rear end, but it's all connected to its abdomen. And this cannon sprays that scalding hot liquid at the spider or at the ant that's trying to attack it, thus scalding the other creature. And then the other creature backs off and says, oh my goodness, this thing is basically spitting things at me that is going it's going to kill me uh-huh. so this is a beetle that is still alive today i've actually i mean in my documentaries and things i've i have videos of these tiny beetles firing their cannons and you can see 
smoking, scalding hot stuff flying out of these beetles. Now, if that's something that is alive today, then is it a great stretch of the imagination to say that Leviathan may have had a similar mechanism where it could breathe out different chemical components that would ignite, that would turn into fire? I mean, yeah. a fire-breathing dragon is what the Bible says existed. If the Bible tells us that it existed in the past, it's never let us down. So I believe that there were fire-breathing dragons, and now we know that there are still creatures that have similar functions, even in the even in tiny beetles. I think that's encouraging. So beetles could barbecue their prey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Built-in barbecue. That's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, you know, some people some people say, well, that's a great mechanism, but it's actually a very well designed mechanism because think about this. Yes, like the hummingbird. It's irreducibly complex. So in other words, you can't take a different parts of the components away from it and still have a functioning beetle because if the beetle didn't have the separating chambers in its abdomen, in its stomach, that keep those chemicals away from each other, well, then the chemicals would touch each other in its stomach. It would start the catalyst. It would start the chemical reaction, and uh -huh. it would cook its insides before it ever expelled it. So are any of these critters still alive? Is there any known sightings of them since that season? Uh, well, of the bombardier beetles, they're all over the place. Yes. Do they do this? They still have the fire ability? They still have this ability. Uh, hmm. Again, I have friends who have collected them out of their backyards. You can still find them. Just go for a hike in Texas or Oklahoma and start looking, and you'll come across one of these things. And if you try to pick it up, well, you better be careful because it will scald get, your finger. You're going to get a hot hand. <laughs> <laughs> so what clue did you get? Does this actually inform science? about Leviathan's ability to form fire? Was it a similar chemistry going on? Yeah, we think it was a similar chemistry. Uh, we No, obviously, we don't know. But we believe, because you can't find soft tissue remains very often in the fossil record. So when we think of Leviathan and these Mosasaurs that we find in geology, well, they're they're mostly turned to stone. They're rock. So we can't see the soft stuff that would have been in its in its head and in its mouth that would have potentially created this fire. But we assume that it was some type of a chemical reaction that could be expelled out of its mouth, possibly with some type of a, a lighter or igniter system, a little spark that would ignite those chemicals as it as it left the mouth of the dragon. We don't know yet, but that's part of the research that's being done. And I have a good friend who's uh, a professor at Leeds University in the UK who has done tons of studies on this little bombardier beetle. It has implications, design implications in combustion engines and so many other scientific fields uh, that that we're learning just by studying these tiny little beetles. It's amazing. You know, I've always thought that there had to be something to the fire-breathing dragons because so much of history cites them, you know, and it didn't yes. come out of someone's imagination. I guess it could have come from an artist writer's imagination, but I mean, maybe they were informed by the Bible, 
Maybe they read about Leviathan and that informed them. But it seems to me that there's too much to it for it to just be an old wives' tale. I think you're right. Uh, even the vast number of not only reports of these things, but you can find fire-breathing dragons on tapestries in England. You can find them on artwork and carvings all over the world. You can mm -hmm. find what appear to be dinosaurs on temples in Cambodia. You can find what appear to be dinosaurs in so many different countries. And then not only do you have the artwork or the tapestries or the carvings that look like dinosaurs, but they look like they still have the flesh and the scales on the dinosaurs. So even if somebody perchance had found a dinosaur preserved in the fossil record, it would have been the, the skeletal structure. It wouldn't have been with the flesh still on it. And yet all of these artist depictions show these things with flesh still on it, with fire coming out of the mouth of some of these things. Yeah. And even up to the Middle Ages, even up to uh, medieval times, you still had legends of great hunters that were hunting small dragons, which really dragons is, the same, is synonymous with dinosaur. Sure. It seems like uh, most of the influence was Asian. It, it wasn't there just a lot. Of, isn't that still a major part of their culture to speak oh, of is. dragons? Not only, I mean, that's a great point because not only do uh, you have a, a lot of illustrations and accounts in Asian culture, but even today, when you look at things like the Chinese Zodiac, right. uh, you'll see things like rabbits. You'll see th all of these real creatures as a part of the Zodiac. And then all of a sudden, wait, dragon? So why did they mix a dragon in with all of these other real creatures, unless at some point in history, they actually saw them as real creatures? Yes. And someone captured it. Nice little yes. photo. They got, they got a Polaroid <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> so you've done a lot of research on dinosaur bones and the construction of that bone, and you you found soft tissue and blood vessels and more of those types of things. Tell me about that research, what you learned from it, and again, the implications of that study. Well, um, so a couple of years ago, there were two paleontologists who had a kind of a secular interpretation who were digging in Montana, um, and they found a T-Rex. Of course, T-Rex is, you know, that's the big one. Everybody knows what a T-Rex is supposed to look like. Well, they found one, and it was very well preserved. So again, they had assumed that this dinosaur had been sitting in the rock for about 66 to 70 million years. Well, they noticed that the giant femur, that's the big leg bone of the T-Rex, uh -huh. uh, was very well preserved. And so they brought in a helicopter with the idea that they were going to cradle this big femur bone under the helicopter and bring it back to the lab so that they could study wow. it. Now, when the helicopter got there, they realized that the leg bone was so big that it weighed too much for that helicopter to pick up. <laughs> so they couldn't get it out. So they, they devised this brilliant plan. They said, um, what if, what if we could cut, carefully cut this big leg bone, this femur in half and helicopter one half out, then we'd come back, we'd helicopter the other half out, and then we would glue it all back together 
and then we could study it in the lab like it was, you know, like we wanted to. So they devised a plan. They actually did cut the bone in half. But when they cut it in half, what they found was shocking. They found soft, stretchy blood vessels. Hmm. <laughs> Osteocytes, they... proteins, collagen, uh, you, you know, things that should not be there if that dinosaur bone had been lying there for 66 plus million years. Okay. So it ages the earth. We're getting more evidence yeah. of the age of the earth. That is, a, that's a clue. Now, of course, there are so many different ideas about the age of the earth, but everything that I have found actually in the field doing paleontolo paleontological research, as well as geological research, everything I have found indicates that the dinosaurs didn't go extinct 66 plus million years ago, but instead they went extinct when there was a catastrophic flood about 4,000 years ago. And guess what, Dr. Green, that 4,000 or 4,500 year range puts us right back to the biblical account that there was a big flood in Genesis that Noah actually built an ark to try to escape this flood. And, and it tells us right there in the Bible that creatures, that all of the creatures on the earth, except the ones that were on, on, on the ark, those all perished. They all drowned in water, and they would have been covered in mud and silt and sediments. Well, uh, a big catastrophic flood with a lot of mud and sand and silt and sediments looks like it covered over the dinosaurs very quickly, preserving some of them so well that they still have soft, stretchy blood vessels in their bones. Just really hard to understand, isn't it? I mean, it's exciting. <laughs> it fits our faith. A technical question, how does that line up with Kansas? You know, we think of the Middle East as, as the flood, and of course it covered the earth. But what did it do to the land base, the water that was on? Like, I mean, that's the middle of the country, and there's just not a lot yeah. of water around there. Like <laughs> what we see now, what, what, what would have it been like, and where did the water come from? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Kansas, again, is for the most part dry. It's for the most part flat. Where I dig in Kansas, where I lead these digs, is, you know, a thousand miles from the nearest ocean. It's 2,500 feet above modern-day sea level. So in right. other words, for there to be giant sea creatures in Kansas... That means that that had to be underwater. And now it's 2,500 feet above water. That's a lot of water. So uh, if you ask secularists, if you ask an atheist, how do you explain this? What they're going to tell you is that, well, we do believe that water covered this entire area at some point in the distant past. So in other words, they're going to say, yeah, I agree that there had to have been a lot of water here, a giant sea here at some point, but then you pin them down and they say, but it couldn't have been the biblical flood. It had to have been some other flooding. And what do you think? I mean, we don't agree with that, do we? No, no. There's, see, everything that I see is pointing to the fact that this was a giant underwater sea about 4,500 years ago that corresponds to the biblical flood. The only reason not to, to believe that this was the biblical flood 
is if you're uncomfortable with the idea that there is a God, that means that you can't be your own God, that you can't make your own rules. So there's no reason to deny this. Everything in geology and paleontology is pointing to the biblical record being accurate, to there being a God that is, that is not only a, a loving God, but is also a just God that really did judge the world of unrighteousness with a flood in the past. Well, David, uh, can you direct us to some more of your work? And most everyone who's listened to this today is intrigued. I know my audience. I think they're going to want to study more. They're going to want to get their hands on something to read and go a little deeper. What do you recommend as a course of study in maybe your books or something else that you're aware of? Point us to what comes next. How do we get into deeper into this? Okay, so uh, the I would really encourage everyone go to davidreeves.com, R-I-V-E-S, David, R-I-V-E-S.com. Right there, you're going to immediately get access to sign up for our free emails and also our free uh, magazine, print magazine, which will be delivered to your door free of charge. And we have articles from layman's level. We have articles from a technical level. We have children's activities in this magazine. And we often discuss these findings in Kansas. We discuss what is going on. So that's those are free resources that you can take advantage of immediately. I've written a couple of books. One of those books actually covers the topic of Leviathan. It covers... Uh, details on these dinosaurs that the Bible speaks of and that we dig up in Kansas. And you know what? Listen, I would encourage everybody, if you, some of you may really want to go in depth in this, don't take my word for it. Come with me on the next paleontological dig and, and I will show you, I will let you touch with your own hands, these fossils that prove the Bible. And we do this every September. It's in Kansas. If anybody's interested in that, you can just text the word DINO, D-I-N-O, to 931-212-7990. So just text the word DINO to 931-212-7990. And again, don't take my word for it. Come with me and I will show you how the Bible is correct in every way. And Dr. Green, if I could take 30 more seconds, I just, I just want to bring it back to this big flood that seems to be confirmed by what what we see in the world of science and in the natural world. That big flood, yeah, it was catastrophic. It buried a lot of creatures. But guess who survived that big flood? It, Uh It was the people and the animals that entered through the door of an ark of a giant ship. Okay, there was only one door in this big boat called Noah's Ark. And only the animals and the people that entered in through that one single door escaped the judgment of the flood. Well, guess what? As Christians, we've been given a door, and that door is Jesus Christ. And any man who enters in through him will be saved for eternity. So, I mean, this is so relevant to our Christian walk right here. You're about to preach. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) I, I get pretty passionate about it. Hey, you should, brother. I I get passionate just by listening to you. So I, again, as always, I appreciate your time. What a great episode. Really good thinking, good presentation. Can't wait to talk next time. I think we might sneak up on the age of the earth. We, we might go there and see what we want to come up with. But 
whatever it is, you've got freedom to bring the topic of choice. But I just want to say thank you again. You're a great blessing. And, and I know we learned from you today. Give us your website one more time. The website is David Reeves, David, R-I-V-E-S dot com. You can find everything from there. You've been listening to the Green Lines Podcast. I'm Steve Green on the Charisma Podcast Network. On behalf of my producer, Adley, we'd like to say to all of you that Jesus came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And I'll tell you what, abundant living uh, gets just a little more exciting every day. Education does so much for it. Knowledge is so powerful. And supernatural knowledge is even more powerful. God bless you all. Thanks for listening.